Let us pray. O God, whose blessed Son was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us the children of God and heirs of eternal life. Grant us, we beseech thee, that having this hope, we may purify ourselves even as he is pure, that when he shall appear again with power and great glory, we may be made like unto him in his eternal and glorious kingdom, where with thee, O Father, and thee, O Holy Ghost, he liveth and reigneth, one God, world without end. Amen. Well, welcome. Uh, it's great to see a, such a good turnout here in the midst of the summer in this muggy, wet weather. Delighted to see you. Uh, this series is going to go for about three weeks, perhaps four, depending upon how much we get through. Um, I'm sure that comes as no surprise to you. Uh, somebody has already asked me the question whether I'm going to be here next Sunday. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, our eldest child is being married next Saturday. And um, we're very excited about it. It's good to be the parents of the groom, uh, as, opposed to, <laughs> as opposed to the alternative. Um, but uh, my plan is uh, to be here, nevertheless. Uh, I'm not the one getting married, so they are. And uh, that's when the real work begins. So um, God willing, uh, my plan is to still be here. So if you don't see me, I may take the 8 o'clock service off, however. If you don't see me at the 8 o'clock service next week, that does not mean that I won't be here for the rector's forum. So just plan on it taking place. I want to begin today by telling you a little bit of a story. For those of you who are familiar with Beaufort, South Carolina, where we came from, you know that one of the big events uh, in Beaufort, one of the big community events, is an annual air show uh, that is sponsored by uh, the United States Marine Corps and the United States Navy, and it takes place at the Marine Corps Air Station down there. There's a large Marine Corps Air Station. You pass by it, you can see the fighter jets sitting out front, and you can see the motto. The noise you hear is the sound of freedom. And uh, they have this big air show every year. Uh, they bring in flyers from all over the country. You have an opportunity to see all kinds of aircraft. Some of them are vintage aircraft, World War II aircraft, biplanes, you name it. Uh, it's a wonderful show for children, especially uh, if they can handle the noise, because sometimes it does get rather noisy. But you get a chance to really see uh, the Navy and the Marine Corps at their best. But of course, the centerpiece for the Marine Corps Air Show in Beaufort uh, is the Navy's elite flying unit, flying squadron, the Blue Angels. Um, if you've ever seen them, they are just a sight to behold. They sometimes fly over Charleston when they're preparing for that show, so you can see them go by, and even if you don't see them, you can sometimes hear them. But they are an amazing uh, thing. Uh, these are the best pilots that the Navy has, the best pilots that the Marines have. And uh, they do all kinds of aerobatic feats that would just take your breath away. Uh, fills me with a, a, just a great source of sense of anxiety because um, I, I have a healthy respect for heights. And when I see them doing these barrel rolls and these free falls and then firing up the engine and picking it up, it's just it's amazing. It's an amazing thing to see. But about 10 years ago, uh, we were coming back from Hilton Head one day. We were over there shopping, and we were on our way back, and we got to Beaufort. Um, there were fire, fire trucks everywhere. There were police cars everywhere. Every avenue, every approach into town was completely closed off. And we discovered that what had happened is the one, during the air show, one of these Blue Angels had unfortunately crashed his plane, uh, a commander in the Navy. And everyone witnessed it. Uh, they didn't actually witness the crash itself, but they saw the plane dip below the tree line, then they heard the concussion, and they saw the plume of smoke, and everybody knew that he had not survived. 
And uh, as with everything in the military, uh, they launched an immediate investigation, very in-depth investigation. Uh, nobody knew exactly what had happened. But about five months later, they came out with an official report. It was published in the newspaper, and I remember reading it. And uh, the general cause was pilot error. The pilot had made a mistake, and the result was that the plane had crashed. The specific cause, however, was something different. Uh, he made the mistake because he experienced uh, what the investigators determined was spatial displacement. Spatial displacement. Uh, what that is, uh, it appears, is that there are times when a pilot can become confused, discombobulated, and not have a sense of their position or a sense of their place. On this particular occasion, uh, the pilot had done one of these fantastic maneuvers and experienced intense g-forces. And the result was that he, momentarily at least, blacked out, just passed out. He came to moments later, just seconds later, and the aircraft was still in flight. But he was confused, and he wasn't exactly sure where he was. Um, this can happen when you experience, as I said, intense g-force if you're flying these, these specialized aircraft. But it can happen to pilots in any number of conditions. If you're flying through extreme weather, for example, or if you're in extreme cloud cover, or you ex experience um, strong turbulence, you can experience this spatial displacement. And it can be so intense at times that a pilot can feel as though he's flying right side up when, in fact, he's flying upside down. And evidently, that is exactly what had happened to this poor pilot. He was moving along. Uh, he blacked out as a result of this maneuver. When he came to, the aircraft was still in flight. He assumed that he was right side up. He was upside down. He pulled back on the stick in order to go up, and he went down. And he crashed his plane. Well, I tell you that story, a tragic story, because I think there is a sense in which you and I, as people living in Western culture, are experiencing a kind of spatial displacement, a moral spatial displacement, a moral and spiritual spatial displacement. That is to say there are so many forces exerting influence on us as people living in the world today that it has become difficult to tell whether we're right side up or upside down. It's become difficult for us as a culture to determine what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false. What is reality and what is not? I think we are experiencing, when it comes to spiritual and moral matters, something very similar to what that poor Blue Angel pilot experienced. This is one of the reasons why Navy pilots are taught that when they're flying, not to necessarily trust their own instincts, not to trust what they can see with the naked eye. When you're going through heavy cloud cover or you're experiencing extreme turbulence, pilots are taught, and I'm not a pilot, but this is what I'm told by those who are, they are taught not just to trust what they can see with their eyes, but to fly according to their instrument panel. I don't know how many of you have ever gotten on an airplane, and as you're getting on the airplane, you can take a glance over to the left, and you can see the cockpit, and you can see that instrument panel. There are so many instruments there. It looks more like a spacecraft than it does an aircraft. But all of those instruments are absolutely necessary. They called that crash the result of pilot error because if the pilot had actually looked at his instrument panel rather than trusting his own senses, he would have realized that the plane was upside down. 
Well, I submit to you that that is exactly what you and I need to do. We are living in a world in which things can appear to be right side up when in fact they are upside down. And so that we don't crash spiritually, we don't crash morally, we don't crash as a culture, as a society, we need to consult our instrument panel. And that's really what this series is going to be about. So I want to begin by talking today a little bit about our culture's spatial disorientation and talking a little bit about the forces that I think are influencing us in such a way that it becomes difficult for us to determine whether we are right side up or upside down. And we're going to fly through these because, again, I've only got about three or four weeks and a lot of material to cover. I say three or four weeks, but you know everything's relative, so we'll just see how it goes. <laughs> what are the forces that are exerting their influence on us as Christian people living in Western culture at the dawn of the 21st century that can cause us to be confused, to lose our sense of perspective? Well, the first is what I would call the force of secularism. Secularism is a word that comes from the Latin, means seclorus, seclorum. It basically means earthly, worldly, temporal. For our purposes today, secularism can be easily defined as that belief that this world, the cosmos, is all there is. Or if it's not all there is, this world that you and I experience is really, for all intents and purposes, all that matters. All right? How many of you have ever seen the, the bumper sticker that says, life's a beach and then you die? How many of you have ever seen that bumper sticker or something akin to it? That's a very secular statement. The person who has that bumper sticker is basically saying what? This life is all there is. So you might as well, as the Epicureans used to say, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. That's a very secular world view. But it is a worldview that holds sway in our culture today. There are many people who look at life and basically that's the way they see things. That this life is all there is, so you might as well enjoy it. You only go around once, so grab all the gusto you can get. Well, that's one of the forces that we see. Most of us were raised in a religious environment, but we're beginning to see that our culture, even American society, is becoming more and more secular. This force is holding sway more and more. Religion, religious matters, the influence of the church, all of these things are being forced to the fringe. So we have the force of secularism that is exerting an influence on us. The source of humanism. Now, there are two types of humanism. There is a good kind of humanism uh, that celebrates the sanctity of human life and the importance of the human person. But there is also another negative form of humanism, which basically says that I am the center of the universe. I am the only thing that matters. We live in a very narcissistic society. Just think about it. We live in a society where people take selfies. We live in a society where people buy selfie sticks. <laughs> sticks so that you can put your phone or your camera on the end of it to take a picture of what? Yourself. We're living in a time of social media when people take photographs of their lunch. <laughs> so you can see what they're having. Now, now, I got news for you. I love you all. I don't care what you're having for lunch. <laughs> And you probably don't care what I'm having for lunch either. But that's the kind of society in which we live, isn't it? 
There is no sense of the common good. There is a sense of what's good for me. I've often wondered if John F. Kennedy could get away saying today in 2018 what he said in 1960. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Because most of the time people are saying, what can the country, what can the world, what can life do for what? For me. I'm the center of it all. I'm the center of the universe. It's all about me. It's very popular in our culture today, particularly in an affluent environment. And this is one of the sources that is exerting great influence on us today. You've got secularism, the belief that the world is all there is. Humanism, which teaches us to believe that it's all about me. That's what many young people believe. Mom and dad tell them that you are the most important thing in the world. All of life revolves around you. Family life revolves around you. You are the most important thing in the world. And then lo and behold, they go off to college and to university and discover that there are lots of other people who've been taught to believe exactly the same thing by their parents. Force of relativism. This is the idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth, absolute beauty. These are all relative terms. It just depends. It all depends upon the person. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. There are no objective truths. There are only subjective realities. And whether something is right or wrong depends on whether or not it makes me happy in an emotive age. Sometimes it depends upon the circumstances. We no longer believe that there are some things that are always right and always wrong. That's the force of relativism. The force of materialism, the force that tells us that it's all about the stuff. The person who dies with the most toys wins. That's the idea. What did Madonna say? She sang a whole song about this. We are living in a material world, and I am a material girl. Now, I, I'm looking out there, I see a lot of gray hair. You understand when I say Madonna, I'm not talking about the mother of Jesus here. Are we, you, you, you do, you're with me, are you? Okay. Materialism, the idea that it's all about the stuff. And, and if you think about it, this is the way we think oftentimes, isn't it? You see somebody go by in a very expensive car, lives in a very affluent neighborhood, has a big bank account, and we generally refer to that person as a successful person, don't we? Because that's how we measure success in our culture today. Success is measured by the amount of stuff that you have that you have managed to accumulate over the course of a lifetime. These are the forces that are exerting an influence on us, and they are turning our world and our perspective upside down, and they are contrary to the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is the exact opposite of all of these things. The Christian worldview teaches us that this world is not all there is. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he what? Loses his own soul in the process. Humanism teaches us that it's all about me. On the night before he was betrayed, Jesus girded himself, got down on his knees, though he was the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he washed his disciples' feet, and he said, he who would be greatest among you must be your servant. Relativism, it all depends. It all depends on whether or not it works for me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's all about the stuff. 
Jesus said, the Son of Man does not even have a place to lay his head. Birds of the air have their necks, foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has no place to even sleep. See, this is what we've been all raised on, every single one of us. This is the air we breathe. These are the forces exerting an influence on our culture, and they have turned our world upside down. We are flying upside down. We don't even realize it. And what do we need to do in moments like that? Well, the one thing you cannot do, like that pilot caught in the midst of a storm, is that you cannot trust your own instincts. <laughs> the best thing that the pilot can do is what? Consult his instrument panel. And I want to submit to you that that is part of what the Bible is intended to do to provide us with guidance on these matters. Now, I'm not suggesting the Bible is merely an answer book. You're struggling with materialism? Well, go to the index, look up materialism, and read these verses and everything will be all right. That's not what I'm suggesting to you. The Bible is God's word. It is a living word, but it does guide us. Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp unto our feet and a what? A light unto our path. So if that is the world in which we are living and we need an instrument panel, the Bible is that instrument panel. It answers the really big questions that make life worth living. Questions like, who am I? Where did it all come from? Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? Where am I going? How is it all going to end? Listen, folks, the point of becoming a Christian is not simply to get your ticket punched so you can go to heaven when you die. The point of becoming a Christian is so that you can enjoy an abundant life, not only in the life of the world to come, but right here in this present reality. Now, somebody might say, well, that's all well and good, but how do I know that Christianity provides the right way? I mean, we're living in a relativistic society. How do I know that Christianity offers the best way as opposed to Buddhism or Hinduism? I mean, this is what many young people are asking today, isn't it? I'm, I'm a very spiritual person. I'm just not a particularly religious person. How many of you have ever heard that kind of language? Of course. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. So how do I know that Christianity is superior to all of these other views? The famous French philosopher and mystic, Simone Weil had a wonderful way of explaining this. She said, if I light an electric torch, that is a flashlight, at night out of doors, I don't judge its power by looking at the bulb, but by seeing how many objects it lights up. The brightness of a source of light is appreciated by the illumination it projects upon non-luminous objects. The value of a religious, or more generally, a spiritual way of life is appreciated by the amount of illumination thrown upon the things of this world. In other words, every religion is going to offer you a narrative, an explanation of the world, and why things are the way they are. And what you have to do is take a look at those various religions and ask yourself, which one best describes what I'm seeing? the reality that I am experiencing. C.S. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it 
I see everything else. Alistair McGrath, who's a professor at Oxford University, professor of the relationship between science and faith, put it this way. He said, the Christian way of seeing things makes cognitive and existential sense of reality, offering us a powerful, persuasive, and attractive account of ourselves and our universe. Christianity does not simply make sense to us, it makes sense of us. It positions us in a great narrative of cosmic history and locates us on a mental map of meaning. It offers to us another way of seeing things, offers us another way of living, and invites us to share these. We need something stable and secure on which we can rest. One of the reasons I'm a Christian today is exactly what Lewis and McGrath and Weiss are saying. I believe in Christianity because when I look at Christianity compared to every other religion in the world, Christianity makes sense not only of the world, it makes sense of me, of what I'm seeing, what I'm experiencing, what I'm struggling with in a way that no other religion does. How many of you have ever wrestled with the whole issue of suffering? I preached on this shortly before I went on vacation. We all deal with suffering, and it's a great mystery. Do you know that Christianity is the only religion in the world in which the deity suffers? In which God comes down and enters into the travails and difficulties of his creation. You'll never find that in Islam. In Buddhism, they'll tell you that suffering is a veil of illusion. Even in Judaism, God remains up there on Mount Sinai, distant and removed. But in Christianity, he comes down, robed in flesh, our great high priest. And he suffers, and he dies, and he thinks it's all worthwhile. Christianity makes sense of our world, and it makes sense of us. So, what does the instrument panel tell us about the world and about ourselves that can help ensure that we are flying right side up. Well, this is going to be a story in four parts. The Bible paints for us a great story, the great story, a great drama, and it's really a play in three, you might say four acts. The first act is creation. The second act is fall. The third act is redemption. And the fourth act is consummation. We're probably going to combine those last two over the course of the next couple of weeks. But the first thing that the instrument panel tells us, the first thing that the Bible tells us about this world in which we live and move and have our being is that we are not here by accident. We are not here as the result of some sort of cosmic catastrophe. We are here by design. That's the first thing that the Bible tells us, that we are here by design. You are not here by chance. You are not here by accident. Now, whether or not you subscribe to Big Bang cosmology makes no difference whatsoever. As somebody once said, if there's a Big Bang, there has to be a Big Banger. <laughs> One of the things the instrument panel teaches us is that you and I as human beings are here, not by accident, but by design. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the very first page, to Genesis chapter 1. And listen to these words. They are among the most familiar words, not only in the Bible, but certainly in the English language. 
And in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's interesting to note the Bible does not begin with any philosophical arguments for the existence of God. It simply begins with God. He is the fundamental reality. And we are here today, why? Because God, that great mover, called us into existence. He called us into existence. Now I want you to notice here, because it's very easy to get sidetracked, that the Bible is not particularly interested with how God did this. I want you to understand something. Genesis does not provide us with a scientific account of the origins or the development of life. All right? It's not interested in those questions. Now, that's not to say that Genesis doesn't have some implications for science today. All I'm telling you is that those are not the questions. The scientific questions are not the questions that Genesis is concerned with. In fact, the author of Genesis, if you were to talk to them about um, evolution, the development of life, the author of Genesis would probably say, I'm not interested in those little questions. <laughs> that is to say, Genesis is not interested in mechanism. Genesis is interested in agency. Why are we here? Who created us? How God created it? I don't think the book of Genesis is particularly interested in that. So if you find that the uh, theory of evolution is compelling, Scientifically, I don't think that there's anything theologically necessarily that would preclude some sort of guided evolution. Now, of course, any kind of atheistic evolution in which God has no part whatsoever, that is problematic for the Christian. But the idea that perhaps God uh, caused all of life to develop over the course of long periods of time, uh, gradually getting better and better, uh, more advanced, I don't think that there's anything necessarily in Genesis that would prevent us from holding to that view. That does not necessarily mean that it's true. It simply means that Genesis is not concerned with those questions. Genesis is concerned with the fact that God created the heavens and the earth. It is not particularly concerned with how. Genesis is not only concerned with God creating the earth and the heavens and the cosmos, but it also makes it very clear that the world that God created, however he created it, and however long it took, it was an orderly universe. It's interesting to note that we're told that there was chaos. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There was chaos. The earth was formless and void. There was darkness, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And verse 3 says, and God said, let there be light. Immediately, what does God do? He produces order out of the chaos. Let me tell you something. If your life is chaotic, if your life is filled with confusion, I can almost guarantee that is not God. Because God is the one who brings order out of the chaos. Don't you remember the disciples when they were caught in that terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee? Those storms would erupt. It was not unusual. 
And they would oftentimes erupt with great violence and suddenly, unexpectedly. And the disciples, remember, you remember them, they were, they were bailing feverishly. They're working the pumps. They're doing everything they can to make sure that they don't perish. And Jesus is where? Sleeping in the stern. And they go and they rouse the Lord. And Peter says to him, do you not care that we perish? And what did Jesus do? I don't know. I've never really liked depictions of this in artwork because they always sort of show Jesus, you know, at the front of the boat, sort of, you know, sort of passive and effeminate. Peace, be still. <laughs> the text says he rebuked the wind and the waves. Stop it! I'm trying to get some rest here. Cut it out! Peace, be still! And everything became calm. See, that is what God does. That is what the scripture is teaching us. That there was God. He created the universe. He created the universe by the sheer power of his word. Technically, it means ex nihilo, out of nothingness. And God brings order where there is chaos. And you can see this. Now, this is very sophisticated language here in the opening chapters of Genesis. It's very sophisticated, poetic language. There's a great deal of Hebrew parallelism here, but if you follow it through, and one of the things you have to remember about Hebrew literature is that the language is designed to be as beautiful as the idea that is being conveyed. The Hebrews believed that language counted. Those who translated the King James Version of the Bible believed that. Those who wrote the 1662 Elizabethan Book of Common Prayer believed that, that they were conveying profound, beautiful ideas, and the language itself should reflect that profundity and that beauty. And you see that here in the opening chapters of Genesis. You can see an orderly universe. We know that the universe even today is governed by laws, don't we? We refer to them as the laws of physics. Well, it only stands to reason if there are laws, there has to be a what? A lawgiver. And laws are there what? For the orderly function of a society. The laws of nature are there for the orderly function of nature. You'll notice as you read through these opening verses of Genesis that you can see a balanced universe. Genesis chapter 1 and following. God creates the light, and to balance the light, he creates the what? The darkness. He creates the morning, but he also creates the what? The evening. He creates the heaven. He creates the earth. He creates the sea. He creates the land. He creates the sun to govern the day, the moon to govern the night. He creates the sea creatures, but he also creates the land creatures. And finally, as the pinnacle of God's creative activity, he creates man and he creates what? Woman. Now, right there is something very important for us because we are living in a world that is very confused about this sort of thing. Aren't we? Right there at the beginning of the book of Genesis, what you get is that God creates the universe. He makes it orderly. He makes it beautiful. It is balanced. And part of that balance is that he creates man and he creates woman. Now, we are flying in a world that is upside down. And we are being taught that there is no such thing as man or woman. It is whatever you want it to be. You can see this. If you go out um, to California or to Washington, and you get a birth certificate, they no longer have the sex of the child, the gender of the child on the birth certificates in those two states. They leave it up to the child to define those things or to determine them at a later point. Now, let me just ask you a question. When you hear that somebody has had a baby, what's the first question you ask? 
Is it a boy or is it a girl? There is a reason why you ask that. Because we recognize that biology has a role to play in all of this. Well, Genesis teaches us that. Right there in those opening verses. And it's not that any of these things are lesser or any of them are more important than the other. The point here is that it is an orderly universe. In order for there to be an orderly universe, there has to be what? Complementarity. It's not as though the sea creatures are less important than the land creatures. It's not as though the woman is any way insignificant or inferior to the man. It is that these two complement each other. And if there is not complementarity, there is not balance. If there is not balance, there is not order. If there is not order, there is not beauty. There is chaos. Well, this is what Genesis is teaching us here in these opening verses. Another thing that Genesis teaches us here about the world that God created, that was orderly, that was balanced, that had complementarity in it, was that when God looked at it, he saw that it was good. Now, good here does not necessarily mean perfect. You know, a lot of people say, well, the world was perfect when God made it. Well, the problem with the word perfect is that that is a subjective term. You know, it's like saying, I'm going to build my dream house, and I'm going to decorate it. And somebody says, oh, my dream house is going to be Danish modern. That would be hell to me. I, I don't want to live in a Danish modern house. If you've got one, God bless you. Um, <laughs> give me a Pennsylvania colonial. Give me an old fieldstone house. That, see that, but see, that's a subjective category. When the Bible tells us that God created the universe and he looked on what he made and it was good, what God is telling us is that it was good according to his purposes, not necessarily according to our liking. It's good according to what he intended. So the creation was good. And here's the most important thing that we learn about creation. It's balanced. It's good in God's eyes. There's order out of the chaos. There's complementarity. And mankind, mankind is the pinnacle of God's creative activity. There are actually two accounts of creation in the book of Genesis. There's one in Genesis chapter 1, and there's one in Genesis chapter 2. But the order of the creative activity is inverted. But they both teach the same thing, that all of creation is building toward a grand and glorious climax. And the climax of God's creative activity, everything that he makes, all the multiplicity of life forms, all the planets and the stars in their courses, Every atom, every molecule, everything was perfectly planned. Everything was perfectly balanced. But the pinnacle of God's creative activity was mankind. Mankind made in his image. Verse 28, 26, excuse me, Genesis, put on your glasses. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
So of everything that God makes, the most important thing, the star and the crown of creation, is mankind. And what makes us unique, what separates you from your golden retriever, or from your horse, or from the most sophisticated forms of life that we have on earth, the thing that makes human beings unique is that we were made in the image of God, which tells us that we are more than just flesh, blood, and bone. There is something unique about human beings. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Theologians refer to this as the imago Dei. We are a reflection of God's majesty, his glory, in a way that no other creature is. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, part of what that means, and I say part because to some degree this is a mystery, because God is a mystery. He has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, but there is much about God that you and I will never know. Somebody has said, well, when we get to heaven, we'll know everything. I don't think so. I think when we get to heaven, we'll know a lot more than we do now. We'll get a lot of our questions answered. But let's face it, folks, even when we get to heaven, we are going to still be creatures. Albeit glorified creatures, we're still going to be creatures. And God is the creator. He is infinite. We are finite. We're going to spend all of creation discovering more and more about God. It will never end. A grand adventure. But at least we can say this much. To be made in the image of God means we have personality. We have personhood. We have knowledge, feeling, will, reason, awareness, sentience. When I say we have feeling, I mean we are not only aware of the fact of time, we are aware of the fact that we are passing through time. There's no creature on earth besides human beings that have that sense. A sense of their own place in the order of creation. Human beings, unlike other creatures, are manifestly creative. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some animals out there that can create things. Have you ever seen a beaver dam? It's quite amazing. A bird's nest is extraordinary. Monkeys can do amazing things. But let me ask you the question, when was the last time you ever saw a monkey write a book? <laughs> or produce a symphony? When was the last time you saw a monkey was an architect? Don't answer that. I don't know why you're These are things that human beings create that no other creature on earth has the ability to create. This is a reflection of God. God is a creator. You and I have been given the ability to what? To create. To think God's thoughts after him. The very fact that you and I can do science today is an indicator of the fact that we have been made in his image. We are curious creatures. So we have personality. We have spirituality. We recognize that there is something greater than us. It seems to be hardwired into us, from the most sophisticated of societies to the most ignorant of societies, a desire to worship. A desire to worship. A longing for the eternal. But because we have personality, because we have spirituality, because we can determine right from wrong, truth from falsehood, that means that we are also morally responsible creatures. 
We are morally responsible creatures. That's one of the things you learn in Genesis. God places the man and the woman in the garden. And he sets parameters for them, doesn't he? He says, you may eat of any tree in the garden except for one. The tree that is in the midst of the garden. If you eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will what? Die. Now, you can set up an electrical fence around your property and your dog will eventually learn not to pass over that barrier. But it's not because you've reasoned with him. It's because he's been trained. We had a golden retriever and we had an, an invisible fence at our house. And we had to keep turning it up. I mean, I think on one occasion I smell burning fur. That dog <laughs> would want to run through that no matter what until we turned it up the whole level. Then he learned, I'm not going there. But he didn't understand why. See, you and I have that ability to reason. That's something that makes us unique among the creatures. And that means we are morally responsible. Contrary to what the world says when you're flying upside down, we are not simply determined creatures. The biblical witness says no to physical determinism, that man is just the product of his genes and his chemistry, and you cannot do anything about it. Because we are morally responsible creatures, the Bible is very clear. It's a no to psychological determinism, which says man is just a product of his environment. That's not to say that your genes and your environment will not have an effect upon you. What it does mean is that you are not solely the product of those things. As human beings, you have the ability to act outside of them. Francis Schaeffer said something that I think is very compelling. He said, today criminals are often regarded as victims rather than victimizers. But since God has made man in his own image, man is not caught in the wheels of determinism. Rather, man is so great that he can influence history for himself and for others, for this life and for the life to come. We're not victims, my friends. God has made us in his image. The psalmist put it well. What is man that you are mindful of him the son of man, that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. That's the world that God has created, and you and I are the crowning jewel. Because we are made in God's image, this means that human life is infinitely valuable. We're living in an age in which human life is regarded as cheap, as of no account, inconsequential. But the biblical worldview teaches us that life, human life, is infinitely valuable. Now, all of life is valuable, but some of life is expendable. That is not the case with human life. It is infinitely valuable from conception to the grave, the youngest of life and the oldest of life. We are living in an age in which the very young are regarded oftentimes as disposable. We are living in an age which oftentimes older people are regarded as disposable. This is the common view. 
But if you look at the instrument panel, it becomes very clear that we are flying upside down. Human life, according to the instrument panel, according to the Bible, is infinitely valuable. Men and women are different. They are different by design, and that is not a bad thing. As I said, it doesn't mean that one is inferior to the other. They complement each other, like Oreos and milk. They complete each other. Read what the Apostle Paul has to say in Ephesians. You know, it's true, in the old marriage vows, and I wish we'd go back to the old marriage vows. Maybe we'll get an opportunity to do that. But in the old marriage vows, the woman promised that she would love, honor, and what? Obey. Obey. Blazon those words up there. <laughs> love, honor, and obey. And it doesn't say in some things, it says love, honor, and obey. But husbands are to love their wives, how? As Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself for it. He put the church before himself. In the old prayer book, a woman promised to love, honor, and obey, and the husband would say, and with my body, I thee worship. Now, I've often thought to myself, a woman probably wouldn't have a hard time obeying a man that worshipped the ground she walked on. You see, it's not a picture of one person giving everything up. It's a picture of mutual submission, and it's a powerful thing. It's a picture of complementarity. Not one vying for power over the other. It's not a picture of conflict. It's a picture of complementarity. That's what the instrument panel gives us. It's a picture of this. And because we are made in God's image, because we are the pinnacle of this beautiful created order, because we complement each other, human beings have also been given a special task. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 and following. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with sea in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food to you. Because we are made in the image of God, we have great privilege. But with great privilege goes great responsibility. God has given us the whole of creation with all of its splendor, all of its majesty, all of its beauty, and we alone have been given what? Dominion over it. Now, what does dominion mean? It means that we are to act as God would act. It means that our responsibility is to bring order out of the chaos so that human beings can live and enjoy the created order. But while we are to bring order out of the chaos, we are not 
to abuse the chaos or the creation, which is exactly what many people do. You know, it's sad that oftentimes you feel that if you're going to be politically conservative, you can't be environmentally sensitive. I'm going to tell you right here, that is not a biblical worldview. God has created the world. He created it beautiful. He created it for our pleasure. You and I have been given dominion over it. That is to say, we were called to be God's regents. We were to care for these things, to tend these things. We are not to worship them. We are not to assume that we are on equal level with them. We are above them, but we are to care for them. We are to care for the animals. We are to care for the creation. We are to care for the earth. That is our responsibility. Why? Because when God created it, he looked upon what he had made, and he declared it to be good. And when we abuse the created order, for whatever reason, when we don't look for alternative fuels simply because it's not cost-effective, the reality is we are sinning against God. This is what we are called to be as human beings. And so one of the things you learn when you read through these opening chapters of Genesis, when you begin to consult the instrument panel, is that it's challenging to everybody, isn't it? In short, as human beings, we are called to be what? We are called to be Christ-like. We are called to be like him. We are called to act as he would act. That's what reality really is. Jesus is the only real person, the only true human being that ever existed. And as human beings, our call is to be more and more like him. That was God's vision for the creation. That was God's vision for the world, a beautiful world, a balanced world, a world of complementarity, a world in which human beings recognized that they were unique. They were second only to God, lower than the angels, but just a little bit lower than the angels, having been given dominion over all of creation to care for it, to tend for it, and to enjoy it. But something went wrong. And that's what we're going to take a look at next week. So are we flying in a world? Are we upside down? Are we right side up? You can't tell by simply looking at the culture around you. The only way you'll know is if you consult the instrument panel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. In just a few short verses from the first book of the Bible, there's so much there, Lord, that we oftentimes ignore or fail to recognize. And so, Lord, we find ourselves operating professing to be Christians, but oftentimes operating under the influence of secularism and humanism and materialism, practical atheists professing a belief in God. Grant us the grace, Lord, to recognize that we are upside down, and grant us the grace and the courage to consult your word that we might be turned right side up for our sake, and for the sake of those who come after us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.